as Amy just said, my name is Julia Fadrell, and I'm a member here at Incarnation Anglican. One thing that I've noticed about our church over the last few years is that we have an unusually large number of pastors and missionary kids in our congregation, including me. And uh, if you are one of those people, you know that you were often used in, as sermon fodder for your parents' sermons. Well, I'm dedicating this sermon today to all of you because I'm using my dad in this sermon. <laughs> Our God is a God of justice, amen? Today we're going to look at Hebrews as Buzz so read, uh, so lovely. Um, this is a well-worn passage for some, and it might be familiar for both good and bad reasons. Maybe like me, when you've encountered it, you've thought about your own parents and the way that they disciplined you, and it was painful. Or maybe you're a parent, and you've thought about your own parenting journey and mistakes that you've made. Or maybe you long to be a parent, and hearing this passage touches a tender place in your heart. Maybe these thoughts are like the weights that the writer of Hebrews mentions in verse 1. So I thought we could take a moment now to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us lay aside any of those weights and uh, apply healing to those places. So pray with me for a moment. Loving God, thank you for your love for us. We ask that you would take every weight, everything that might keep us from hearing you and loving you and being healed by you, um, and that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many people here have nieces or nephews or some combination of those? So many of you know the joy of being a beloved aunt or uncle um, and loving those kids unconditionally. Uh, being an aunt or uncle is a very special and sweet job. Um, for most of my life, from the ages of 11 to 37, uh, my primary relationship with children was as an aunt. It wasn't just any aunt, though. I was the cool aunt. I was the adult who would swoop in and do fun things and shower the kids with love and occasionally presents. The kids know me as my best self, gracious and warm, creative and silly. I could love them unconditionally, but I never have to be the heavy because that's their parents' job. Only once did I have to use my strong voice with a couple of my nephews, and at the end of it, we were all in tears. Now that I'm a parent, sometimes I wish I was my son's aunt, getting to do all of the fun stuff, but without the primary responsibility of ensuring that they grow up to be good men and functional humans. As an aunt, the relationship with my niece and nephews was pure in a way that gets kind of muddled once you start having to impose discipline, to have to say no all the time, or to uh, allow consequences that might cause momentary distress or suffering. Obviously, the same thing applies to grandparents who get the joy of unconditionally loving their grandchildren without the misunderstandings that can arise when discipline is necessary. In my own parenting journey over the past four years, I've come across roughly 40 quadrillion books, courses, podcasts, Instagram, uh, accounts with advice for what happens when discipline is necessary. Of course, in addition to all of that sometimes contradictory advice, there's my own experience of being a child and the ways in which my parents, mostly my father, disciplined me. My father and I didn't always have a good relationship. To give you some context, he was the third of eight kids growing up in Manhattan tenements in the 1940s and 50s. 
My grandfather was a very strict disciplinarian and not a very relational guy. Because my dad's family was poor, he had to take on a lot of responsibility for a young kid acting as the superintendent for their building in exchange for free rent and helping out with my grandfather's trucking business. As a result, my dad is this very no-nonsense, stoic, black-and-white kind of guy with a deep sense of duty and responsibility. He felt his main role in our family was to provide for us and discipline us when we were out of line. I, on the other hand, am a contrarian and a nonconformist, and I started showing those tendencies at a very early age. For those of you who speak Enneagram, I am a four-wing three, which means I have big, dramatic emotions and always have to do something, as David Gagnon jokingly described once, as so unique. My father and I clashed a lot. Uh, he felt like it was his duty to me to break my spirit so that I wouldn't have a hard time in life. But what he thought was a bug was, for better or worse, as my husband could say, uh, a feature. So his discipline only alienated me, and because he was kind of emotionally unavailable and didn't really pursue a relationship with me, I perceived his parenting as very hostile and adversarial. I just couldn't receive correction from him. And then I became an adolescent, and like most adolescents, I started acting out, declaring at age 12 that I was an agnostic and a feminist and a socialist, basically a complete and total re rejection of all of my parents and their values. In retrospect, I was actually a pretty good kid, uh, always an honor student and not into drugs and sex, even if I wore lipstick and Doc Martens and pretended that I didn't care. But I was cutting class, and I was acting out and hanging out with kids who were into drugs and sex, so my parents were very worried. Um, at first, my dad started cracking down on me pretty hard, and then I would just rage back even harder, or I would try to escape by hurting myself. Then one day, when I was around 13 or 14, my parents were praying about what to do with me. Some more context, they are Pentecostals. The Holy Spirit showed my dad that I couldn't receive discipline from him because he wasn't trying to have a relationship with me. Uh, he became convicted that he wasn't treating me with the same unconditional love and grace and commitment that God showed him. So he started trying to do that. And of course, little by little, slowly I let my guard down and our relationship gradually, slightly changed. But there was still a lot of pain and distance between us. About 13 years later, when I was 27, my dad suffered a near-fatal heart attack. He flatlined twice in the days after a major heart surgery that he only had about a 3% chance of surviving. Then a few months later, he had to go back in for a second surgery to replace his mitral valve that he also only had about a 3% chance of survival. Um, the nurses in the ICU were actually shocked to see him after the second surgery because they were convinced that he couldn't have survived the first. My father's heart attack literally and figuratively changed his heart, and in a strange, it can only be God way, it changed our relationship because suddenly we weren't sure how much time we would have left. A year after he nearly died, my niece, his only granddaughter, was born, and they adored each other and became extremely close, which eventually led to him apologizing to my sisters and me or really repenting for not pursuing a relationship with us when we were younger. He repented for thinking that he didn't need to be close to us and that his role was just discipline. Since that day, Christmas Eve 2011, our relationship has only gotten closer. I'm able to receive correction and wisdom from him. In fact, I seek it out 
when I'm having parenting questions or need help relating to Phil, I often call him instead of my mother. In fact, today we are both coincidentally preaching on the same passage, and I bounced some ideas off of him, and of course, I got permission to use him as an example. <laughs> so how does this relate to Hebrews 12? Well, we can't get around that thorny fact that God disciplines us. As the philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, that God is love means that he will do everything to help you to love him. That is to change you into his likeness. He knows, how well, he knows well how infinitely painful this change is for you, and so is willing to suffer with you. He suffers more in love than you do, suffers all the heartache of being misunderstood, but he is not changed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish that I was God's niece or a grandchild. I would like all of the affection and the ice cream for breakfast, but none of the discipline. I don't want to time out. I don't want to be grounded or have my privileges taken. When God is disciplining me, it can be especially challenging for me to not see him the way I saw my dad for so many of my formative years, unyielding, stern, emotionally unavailable, and only interested in my obedience and not my hopes and fears and dreams. In fact, for most of the 14 months of secondary infertility that my husband and I experienced before we got pregnant with our son, Eric, I channeled my disappointment into anger at God because it just felt like he didn't care about our suffering. It wasn't until a prayer time with Amy uh, that I could hear that God was trying to speak my language, that he did see me, did care about this deep longing, and when that happened, I was able to let down my defenses and see that I was blaming God for not conforming to my master plan, my timetable, and that I just fundamentally did not trust him with my life. He used that period of infertility to give me something better than a baby. He used it to heal very, very deep wounds that were keeping me from knowing him and loving him. So whether we like it or not, God is going to parent us. But God is not like my dad, who sought obedience without a relationship. God wants us to have a secure, trusting relationship with him. To quote the therapist Adam Young's paraphrasing of the psychiatrist and neuroscientist Kurt Thompson, when each one of us comes into the world, we enter it looking for someone looking for us. Our deepest desire and highest hope is that there will be someone looking for us and that this person will always be there for us and will pursue our hearts with a genuine desire to truly know us. Our greatest need as human beings is to be known and to know that the person who knows us will be there for us. Spell that out, <laughs> that someone looking for us is God. When we are born again and welcomed into God's kingdom, we enter it looking for that someone looking for us. When we become adopted into God's family, God treats us like his children. God parents us. Young applies Thompson's theory to parenting in what he calls the big six. Six things all humans need from their caregivers to have secure attachment. So I'm going to take a few minutes to go through the list and then and we'll apply them to God. So the first thing is attunement. Did your parents know what you were feeling? Does God know what you're feeling? Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? 
Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. Number two, responsiveness. Did your parents respond to you when you were distressed? If they did, how did they respond? Does God respond to you when you're distressed? And if so, how does he respond? Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Number three, engagement. Did your parents pursue your heart? Does God pursue you? Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, God is saying of his people, Israel, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her to the desert and speak tenderly to her. Again, in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is saying of his people, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Number four, ability to regulate your arousal. Did your parents soothe you when you were scared or sad or help to stimulate you when you were shutting down? Does God soothe us when we are scared? Um, I would quote them all, but basically you can't throw a stone in scripture without reading some variation of don't be afraid. So don't be afraid. Number five, strong enough to handle your negative emotions. Did your parents allow you to express negative emotions without judgment? Did they say things like, anger is bad? Does God allow us to express our negative emotions? I love this exchange in John 11, verses 32 through 35. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you been? Where have you laid him? He asked. <laughs> come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. If you want a couple of other great examples of God allowing us to express negative emotions, just read Psalm 88 or like the book of Lamentations. Finally, number six, willingness to repair. When your parents hurt you, did they apologize and try to make it right? And here is the truth and the beauty of the whole gospel. We, not God, are the ones who need to make things right. And yet, through Jesus, it's God who suffered and died to redeem our world and to make things right. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us to look at Jesus. Don't fix your gaze on your suffering and pain. I just want to be clear, that doesn't mean you invalidate it or you minimize it or you gloss over it. No, it means go back to that Kurt Thompson quote. Look up. Look for the gaze of the one gazing at us. Look at Jesus. Jesus is, as Paul says in Colossians, the image of the invisible God. When we, see, when we look to Jesus, we see someone who is gentle and humble in heart. We see a good shepherd who knows his sheep. We see someone who welcomes sinners and who went out of his way to sit with a woman of a despised race. We see a young man in the prime of his life and ministry, allowing himself to be humiliated and brutally executed, surrounded by thieves in order to save the world. He did this for the joy set before him, which is union with us and with all the saints. Jesus secured our attachment to the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's who is disciplining you. Not an overbearing tyrant, 
not a distracted or neglectful caregiver. It is Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving sin, wickedness, and rebellion. I'm going to close us by reading um, the priestly blessing from Numbers, but I'm going to use the translation that my son Charlie's uh, Jewish preschool uses. I felt like it was fitting. May God bless you and watch over you. May God cause the divine face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up the divine face toward you and give you peace. Thank you.